Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. Nice to see you, Alex. And also here with Haley Knopf. Hey, hey. What's up, guys? Haley, we must talk White Lotus. Yes, 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 yes. Always. So we are recording this on Thursday, as we always do. The season finale is on Sunday, and it's such a good season. It feels like the Super Bowl's coming at us. I'm very excited. <laughs> Alex? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a Lotus head. <laughs> not to call um, you oh, out. No. As it is. Um, it's not it's not out of any principle of like I think it's bad or anything. I watched a couple episodes of season one and the it just was like a little like Uh-oh. meandering or like lethargic to me. Uh, it all coalesces I, as the season gets. Yeah, no, on. I know. I mean, enough people whose opinions I respect. I was actually Amber, I was texting with Bill, our former co-host, and I basically said to him what I'm saying to you all now, saying, like, oh yeah, I kind of dipped in, didn't really like it, or it didn't what I didn't said grab was, you, right? What I said was it didn't get yeah, it didn't get the hooks in me. Um so it's not like I'm I'm not like hot taking you on White Lotus. But anyway, uh yeah, I don't know. And he was like, he couldn't believe he was like, this is like literally my favorite thing on TV and sure. Yeah, I, like you guys I would agree with pretty that. Much you know on, what? on the same wavelength. Happy Haley agrees with me. Otherwise, we'd have to make Bill come back because somebody's got to agree on this. Yeah. <laughs> Love that Play show. jazz. Yeah. But part of why we're even mentioning it, other than just my excitement, I did want to note one tiny little legal connection that really made me laugh. Aubrey Plaza plays a character who is in opposition to a more conservative, wealthy couple that they're on vacation with. And the little beat that tells you everything you need to know about who she is is that she is a plaintiff's side employment attorney. <laughs> Love yep. it. Love and it. And they okay. make they make a big <laughs> thing out of like there's one conversation that just cracked me up where they really make it a point to say that she's plaintiff's side and talk about who she's defending and sort of her stance in opposition to big employers. So very and the other funny guy stuff was like, me. yeah, was obviously we can't recreate this here, but the whole crux of it was the other guy was like, well, you know, a lot of these allegations aren't really true that you're representing. <laughs> and she's like, I would argue they, they are. are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's some good character development because that's all you really needed to know. And then I immediately locked in on who she was. So I would recommend everybody watch it, including you, Alex. Yeah. yeah, and you can go into season two without having watched. Right, I one. know it's like an anthology it thing. Is. I understand that, um, and I'm intrigued by that concept. I'm also a huge Mike White fan. Um, sure. I'm one of the dozen or so people that watched the Laura Dern show in Enlightened. Or, oh, uh, right, uh, Enlightenment. In, Enlightened. Excuse me. Yeah, it was so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great show. Um, which I obviously just barely remembered the name of, but let's put that aside. Um, uh, anyway, though, speaking of great content. That's what's going on with Pro Se this week, I think. Ooh, good transition. Well, you know, we've been at it for a few years now. So later on in the show, uh, Amber and I um, had a really great talk with our old friend, Jimmy Hoover, stalwart Law 360 Supreme Court reporter, about a very interesting set of oral arguments this week about a case involving this collision of LGBTQ discrimination and freedom of religion. This is basically kind of a new iteration of the Masterpiece Cake Shop litigation that happened a few years ago. Yeah. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'm always happy to have Jimmy on when we have a really big high profile case because he can really get us into the nooks and crannies of exactly what happened at those oral arguments. They were 
pretty explosive and yeah. interesting. So really great talk with Jimmy. I'm very excited to hear that conversation. But before we get into that, Amber, you have a very wild ride of a story to uh, bring us up to speed on. Oh, and that is a pun of sorts. Wild ride and speed. I, when, when the listeners hear what I'm about to talk about, they're going to love those puns. Or hate me, (laughs) as they should. There are lots and lots of things I worry about when I go to rent a car, just because it's not an everyday transaction for me. So, you know, what happens if I get hit by another vehicle? Will I have some kind of Seinfeld-esque moment where I get there (laughs) and they I reserved it, but they didn't hold the reservation? These are all (laughs) things I think about. But I have never once worried about whether or not I'd be arrested for auto theft. And guess what? That's been happening to some Hertz customers who just settled with the company. Hertz is going to pay $168 million to resolve 364 pending claims related to allegations that customers were detained after the rental agency falsely reported the cars as stolen. This is an insane story, and we're going to get into the details that make it insane. I do just want to say, in addition to being sort of a huge PR nightmare for Hertz, Kind of an ancillary hit for Haley's friend Tom Brady, Hertz Pitchman. Uh, you know, just just his, his bad year continues. <laughs> he stopped being my friend when he left New England. That's Let's a good point. Clarify. Okay, this is a truly shocking story. Um, I remember, like, I, there was some preliminary reporting about this in the context of Hertz's bankruptcy, which I know you'll talk about, Amber. But I do just want to sort of cut to the chase of. This idea that Hertz was aggressively pursuing and in, and in some cases like advocating and obtaining the imprisonment of of customers that they said stole their cars, and I just want to kind of get our arms around exactly what is alleged to have happened and what's the deal with this settlement. So, what do we need to know? Yeah, so the settlement itself resolves about ninety five percent of all the claims of this nature, accusing the car rental company of filing thousands of false stolen car reports. In September, for example, there was uh, there were six customers who alleged they rented cars from Hertz and then found themselves detained at gunpoint because the company reported the cars stolen. And they're not the only ones. It turns out sometimes Hertz reported vehicles stolen even after customers had extended and paid for additional days on their rental period. And that led to some pretty scary run-ins with the police and even in some instances, jail time for unsuspecting customers. So according to various court filings here, the false reports of theft fell into two main buckets. There were times when Hertz claimed a car was overdue. So that's what I was talking about, that somebody would like have paid for an extension, but Hertz reported it stolen anyway. Mm -hmm. And then other instances where Hertz misplaced a car themselves and reported it stolen. So basically, according to customers who sued, when the company couldn't find a car, it quickly reported it stolen without doing a full investigation to try to track it down. It failed to enter that report of theft into its own system and then later rented out the reportedly stolen car to an unsuspecting, innocent customer who just came along and had bad luck. (laughs) I mean, you could see like the bureaucratic nightmare that emerges from that. Yeah, yeah. And there's no real way anyone could protect themselves from just being the unlucky person who got that car that had already been reported stolen. So you can see how this becomes a nightmare. Examples of what happens to people can in some of the instances be pretty bad. Uh, One woman paid for an extension on her car rental, but was later arrested for theft and spent 37 days in jail. Another man had paid for and returned a Hertz rental car, but there was a warrant out for his arrest. um, And 
He had some back and forth with the police over it. But when he missed a hearing date, he ended up in jail for six and a half months. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. It's crazy. So stuff. terrifying. Okay, so is this just like, you know, one location of Hertz gone rogue or? I really wish it was, Haley. I wanted that to be the answer to like, is it isolated? No, it's not. It is not oh, isolated. No. Oh, the no. lawsuits all say this is a systematic nationwide problem with Hertz's inventory management. That's the part of it where like they'd misplace a car, report it stolen very quickly, and then just rent it out to somebody else when they found it. Hertz had initially contested the claims that it was falsely reporting stolen vehicles. But there was a change in executive leadership. And when that person joined the company, they acknowledged some wrongdoing and even admitted it files around 3,300 theft reports every year against customers. <laughs> I couldn't I believe know, that. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't know believe when I read that. So, I mean, I don't doubt that some amount of them are legitimate. There must be some amount of cars that do. I'm in sure fact, people steal rental cars sure. somewhere in the country, right? I'm, like, I'm very sure it dubious that it's 3,300 per year for just Hertz, uh, yeah. not even counting other rental companies. So the company argued that many of these problems were addressed after it had filed for bankruptcy. But the customers say that Hertz has emerged from bankruptcy and emerged in 2021 from that proceeding and that the issues are still ongoing, that none of this has changed. And now that Hertz has settled the vast majority of these claims, I really wanted to talk about this on the show just to talk about how crazy it is. Um, the book is now closed on the claims at issue for those 300 plus people. But we're going to have to see moving forward if the company resolves the broader management problems of its inventory that led to this in the first place. Yeah, I was. That's what struck out. That's what stuck out to me, uh, rather, when I first read the reports where it's like, because it resolves something like 360 or so yeah, active right. legal claims. Yes. But as we said, they're filing over 3,000 theft reports a year for several years. And it does raise the question I'm sure there will be subsequent litigation about this or some kind of federal investigation or, or whatever. That's what I was going to say, Alex. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, right. nothing has happened yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't regulators a taking minimum. a harder look at this as yeah. we speak. And we yes. may hear more about it. Absolutely wild. I feel like I overuse that word a lot, but. <laughs> well, it's fitting this here. One it's, very, it's very fitting here. Well, next up, I want us to talk about Nirvana. Which great. Hell yeah, bro. Always a good time. Mm. Had a had a great time uh, while I was prepping for this, just listening to a bunch of Nirvana and calling Fantastic. it part of my workday. Um, I think that's I, important. It wasn't me. One of the greatest karaoke performances I've ever seen in my life happened at a bar near my house, which is now closed. And someone some brave guy went up there and did the Nirvana. Somehow the karaoke machine had it. The Nirvana uh, unplugged version of Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Yeah. Oh, my. And nice. That all kind of coalesces in like a very dramatic vocal performance. Sure does. Anyway, awesome. That's a huge digression. Why are we talking <laughs> about them in a legal context, Haley? The band has been battling some child pornography allegations. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen these headlines at the very least. This is from the that baby who appeared on the cover of the iconic 1991 album, Nevermind. Yes. And um, that, of course, is that image of a naked baby underwater in a swimming pool. 
seemingly chasing a dollar bill on a fishing line. So obviously this is uh, this baby is not a baby anymore. Fun fact, he and I are the same age. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. Cool for you. <laughs> I realized that and was like, oh boy. Um, <laughs> so this baby is uh, now a man in his early 30s. His name Sick. is… It's so crazy how babies <laughs> become men. I know. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. But you said… Yeah, it, that, that also is wild. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so his name is Spencer Eldon and his case is now before the Ninth Circuit. This is, you know, certainly an interesting one on the merits… But what's being decided is really just whether he waited too long to bring these claims. He obviously is arguing that he did not, um, and a lower court was wrong to throw that out for that reason. So I remember this album cover very well. Young Amber loved Nirvana. Adult Amber still loves Nirvana, yeah, but I had this say. album. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think we even talked about this very case on Pro Se before, but I do sort of remember thinking at the time, Oh, I bet they'll settle this and we'll never hear about it again. It was episode 213, by the way. I just Ooh, looked it up. You. If you if you want to go back, we did talk about it initially. And I agree with Amber. I I kind of thought it was like some, not a fly-by-night thing, but it seems like kind of one of those curiosity cases that might not gain traction. Yeah. But that doesn't seem like the case here, as you say, they're at the Ninth Circuit. Well, for anybody who didn't listen to 213, Haley, give us sort of the synopsis. Yeah, well, let's first clarify how this album cover came to be. I went down a whole rabbit hole on this last night and found an old interview with the art designer behind it. His name is Robert Fisher, and he is a defendant in the suit. So Fisher said that Kurt Cobain was actually the one with the vision for the cover. And he envisioned it being a baby essentially being born underwater. So Fisher first started looking through child birthing books to try and find a photo. Yikes. Unsurprisingly, he was like, ah, I don't know about what I'm seeing here <laughs> for album art. So then he found a photographer, Kirk Weddle, who is also a defendant in the suit. And Weddle said in, uh, kind of advertised himself as specializing in, quote, submerged humans. Love that description. So Weddle then got a handful of parents to bring their babies down to the Pasadena Aquatic Center, which is at the Rose Bowl, by the way. My cousin used to swim there. Um, and uh, and he basically, he just had these parents like pass their babies around underwater in front of the camera. And then ultimately they ended up choosing this photo of Eldon. Um, and he was four months old at the time. All right. And I remember kind of the vague contours of this. Who exactly, and you've, you've already named a couple of defendants, but kind of focus us here on Eldon, who is the baby, now the baby man. Uh, <laughs> who did he sue? And like, what exactly did he say? I mean, I assume it has something to do with like the consent of his body being displayed in that way or or something. I mean, what? What do we need to know about the actual legal claims? Yeah. So he is now a painter in Los Angeles. And he sued the surviving members of the band, the estate of Kurt Cobain, may he rest in peace, Fisher and Weddle, among a couple of other people involved in, in the album. And the suit was actually filed last year. He's claiming specifically that the photography displayed his genitals in a way that's prohibited under child pornography laws. And he, he has said over, over the course of this litigation that his privacy was violated 
And he spent years in therapy as a result of that album cover. So it's been many years, as we've discussed um, already, since that album cover came out. I would imagine that played into some of the defenses to this lawsuit. Yeah, they've argued that Eldon was fine with the album cover for a long time before filing his suit. Um, At one point, he allegedly joked to MTV about using Nevermind-inspired pickup lines uh, on women. So they've just, in general, accused him of finding his own ways to monetize being the Nirvana baby. And as you guys may have seen, I mean, I remember seeing him in recreations of the album cover for its like 10th and 20th and I believe 25th anniversaries. And obviously, I mean, that is no indication of how, you know, he has truly felt about it or his relationship with it. But these were all things that came up in the in the defense. And really the the band and the the artists and photographers have really been leaning into all of that. So this very kind of pretty salacious, I mean, it's a child pornography case, you know, involving a very popular band and a very iconic record for an entire generation of people. But of course, this is a legal podcast, and it seems like this actually ended up turning on a somewhat procedural statute of limitations deal, because this is this, this record is like 30 years old. What were kind of the uh, fault lines there? Yeah, the judge agreed that the uh, decade-long statute of limitations of personal injury claims began ticking when Eldon turned 18. Mm. Um, But, you know, Eldon and I are, we're now in our 30s. And he was 30 before he filed the suit. Condolences, by the way. Thank you, thank (laughs) you. So the judge said, you know, really, it's undisputed here that you did not file this complaint within those 10 years. Eldon's lawyers, unsurprisingly, have disagreed. They've argued that many other violations of child pornography laws have occurred since that photo was taken and that they continue to the present day. But the judge said, really, none of that matters. He needed to file the suit within 10 years of turning 18, and he didn't. And they haven't proven that, you know, he just the other day became aware of his injuries. And now that lands us. That was all that was all at the district court level. But the reason we're talking about it now is that we've landed at the Ninth Circuit. What exactly is he arguing here? I know we're still on this timing issue, but what are what are those arguments looking like before the appellate court here in California? Elton is arguing that the courts have repeatedly held that distribution of child pornography infringes a victim's dignity, uh, no matter what the victim's age was at the time of distribution. So he's pointing to a 2006 amendment to federal law that broadened remedies for victims under the child protection statute. He said in a brief that the revised statute only requires that a plaintiff was a victim of one or more federal criminal predicates as a child and said it doesn't require that those predicates that form the basis for the claims occur only during the victim's childhood. So he, it, this is all like a fancy way of of, uh, you know, expanding on the, the timing argument here and saying, well, this, this is continuing to affect me. Um, and he said that the lower court's ruling recirculates a problem that has already been fixed. According to him, it harkens back to an old statute that was previously misinterpreted to limit the application of the statute to violations occurring during a victim's childhood. 
before Congress stepped in to fix that statutory language. So where we stand now is the opening brief has been filed. It remains to be seen whether Eldon can actually get his suit revived, but we'll obviously be watching for that. After mostly punting on a case involving a Colorado baker that refused to make a cake for a same-sex couple's wedding four years ago, the Supreme Court is once again examining the line between religious freedom and LGBTQ discrimination. This time, the justices heard arguments from a Christian web designer suing to assert her right to refuse service to same-sex couples. And the justices used this week's oral arguments to pepper the litigants with hypothetical questions about the interplay of free expression and discrimination. Those hypotheticals ranged from amusing to downright uncomfortable. And with us to break down the entire spectacle is Law 360's Supreme Court reporter and co-host of Law 360's The Term, Jimmy Hoover. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. We are so glad to have you as always. We want to focus, the reason we're having you is because you wrote a really interesting piece about the kind of very odd lines of questioning that were going on at the arguments. But I do want to reset a little bit. Just give us the bare facts of the case here. I gave kind of a brief rundown in my spiel there. But what do we need to know about what's being argued and what's at stake in this case? Yeah, this one's being brought by a woman named Lori Smith. She's a web designer, graphic designer, uh, who has a company, as you say, called 303 Creative. And um, importantly here, as opposed to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case where you know the, the, the baker in that case, Jack Phillips, had actually turned down uh, an order for a custom cake from a, from a gay couple in his store, uh, Lori Smith here, through her attorneys at the same foundation that represented Phillips in that case four years ago, basically brought a preemptive pre-enforcement action in order to secure the court judgment that as an expressive artist, she cannot be compelled by the state of Colorado to make wedding websites for same-sex couples, given that in her view, scripture defines marriage as between one man and one woman. So this case basically attempts to answer the same constitutional questions that the court punted on in Masterpiece for years ago. And that is exactly as you say, what is the line between you know, these free speech rights on the one hand and discrimination against LGBTQ folks on the other. And uh, yeah, as we saw from a pretty long Supreme Court hearing on Monday, the justices really, you know, used the hearing as an opportunity to kind of like parade a, a number of hypotheticals about what the significance of ruling one way or the other. And I think it became pretty clear that each hypothetical was kind of deployed by the justices, depending on the angle at which they were approaching the case. I mean, uh, the conservative justices tended to view this one as potentially setting up a scenario in which all kinds of uh, religious or expressive business owners would be compelled to promote messages that they disagree with, whereas you know the liberal justices pretty clearly saw this as a case of a slippery slope where there's nothing really to distinguish between discrimination against uh, on the basis of, let's say, LGBTQ status um, and, and let's say, uh, race. So that was really what, what was at the heart of this case. And it definitely had a similar feel to it as the Masterpiece Cake Shop case four years ago. It kind of felt like deja vu a little bit. 
So it is very similar, obviously, to that Masterpiece Cake Shop case. But to me, the hypotheticals in this one were really unexpected. I mean, they were a little wilder, a little more out there than what I was anticipating. We do tend to get hypotheticals at the high court, but these really stood out. So I was hoping you could share with the listeners some of the moments that really caught your attention as they were going through hypos. So, I mean, let's start with one from Justice Amy Coney Barrett, right? So Smith's attorney, Kristen Wagoner, she's, as I say, of this group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which brings a lot of these religious liberty cases. You know, she was obviously facing some pretty strong resistance from the liberals on the court. And then Justice Barrett kind of chimes in with what I, I don't think the attorney instantly recognized as a pretty helpful question because she starts asking uh, about a hypothetical heterosexual couple that comes to Smith and and wants maybe, let's say, a wedding story that essentially disclaims the idea that marriage is between one man and one woman. And uh, Smith's attorney, uh, Kristen Wagoner, initially says like, yeah, of course we would publish that website because our whole beef is with the whole idea of a a same-sex wedding. And Barrett, you know, doesn't really like that answer because what she's essentially trying to tee up Wagoner to say is that even for a heterosexual couple, if what they're asking for is, you know, Smith as an expressive business owner to promote a message that she disagrees with, that the business owner would similarly reject the heterosexual couple. The idea, the implication being that it's not the stat, the LGBTQ status of the customer, it's the message. It's the what, not the who. And she eventually came around and understood that that was the point of the questioning, but it, she yeah. kind of whiffed the softball a little bit. Yeah, well, the way that you wrote about it, you wrote about it very capably, and I, I, I would encourage everybody to talk about it. But yeah, it was almost like Tony Barrett was kind of holding the, the, the attorney's hand a little bit through like follow-ups and stuff. It was very interesting. I mean, that's what you'll get, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it, a, a lot of times it's it's no secret that, that the justices are either asking hard questions of the attorneys that they agree with or, or tough questions of the ones that they disagree with. So let's let's go back to Smith's, uh, Smith's argument. Yeah. So Katanji Brown-Jackson, for instance, she brings up this example. And this is an example that I think she's using to d- demonstrate that there's really no distinction between well, at least in Justice Jackson's view, distinction between you know uh, opposition to same-sex marriage or, for instance, maybe let's say a racist business owner. So she uses the example of basically a racist Santa Claus photography business at a local shopping mall that for whatever reason in Justice Jackson's hypothetical, um, this business attempts to essentially capture the feelings of, you know, 40s and 50s sepia-toned America, um, like uh, yeah. what's the movie with uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart, the Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe, That's the one, right. Yes. And, and so, you know, Justice Jackson hypothesizes, like, well, let's say there's this expressive racist uh, photography business that that doesn't want to express a message that they disagree with, and that is the idea of black children being allowed to sit with photographs of Santa Claus. Like, would that be allowed? And and to be fair, Wagoner kind of struggled to answer that question and, and said it was a bit of an edge case and that, you know, this presents a much cleaner issue for the court in the idea that um, clearly Smith's opposition is to expressing a message about condoning something that violates and contradicts 
her religious beliefs, which kind of prompts like an incredulous reply from Justice Elena Kagan, who's like, really, this is going to be a tough case for you? <laughs> right. Thought we were all uh, in, in agreement here about the segregation stuff. Yes. <laughs> well, exactly. And so, but the, the idea that that was an idea that that persisted throughout the arguments. And I guess I'll turn now to like Justice Samuel Alito, who's focusing once again on the idea that it's not necessarily the characteristics of the customer necessarily, but ultimately the message. So he hypothesizes, let's say, a, and this actually ended up being kind of a funny exchange, uh, an unmarried Jewish person asking a Jewish photographer to take a photographer for his J-date dating profile. And he says, it's a dating service, I gather, for Jewish people. And then Justice Kagan chimes in. She goes, it is pretty helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so this was making the rounds on uh, uh, for the SCOTUS watchers. Yeah. So he, so he was saying that to kind of tee up his next example. Um, and he, this is, it kind of devolves into awkward territory here where he says, well, maybe Justice Kagan will be familiar with the next website I'm going to mention. So next, a Jewish person asks a Jewish photographer to take a photograph for his AshleyMadison.com dating profile. So for your listeners who maybe aren't aware, that's for you know uh, users looking to engage in extramarital affairs. He's quick to clarify that he's not accusing Justice Kagan of frequenting the websites, but basically, <laughs> you know, it's a hypothetical basically saying like, would you compel the Jewish photographer to take photos of a client for clearly something that he disagrees with in the idea of these extramarital affairs? Now, a few moments later, he circles back to the example that Justice Jackson raised in, in terms of the racist Santa. And, you know, it, it, I think it's probably clear that maybe he's kind of riffing on the fly at this point during the argument. And, it, and Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it seemed like he was kind of trying to get the thread back after kind of suggesting in a, in a joke. I mean, they were all joking. I don't mean to be too scandalized by it, but like the weird Ashley Madison aside with Elena Kagan was. Strange, at least. I don't. Again, I don't mean to overstate it. But what was he? What? What? What did he say about the when we got back to this? When, when we got back to the rational territory of racist mall Santas. So, so I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like it's the Supreme Court. Yeah. There's a lot of attorneys and members of the public watching. It's probably best not to be like riffing on like <laughs> kind of what are pretty sensitive subjects like yeah. uh, racist Santa Clauses. So he posits this. Um, counter hypothetical at the other end of Justice Jackson's shopping mall scenario where there's a black Santa. And he asks, like, would this black Santa be forced to take photographs with, let's say, a child wearing a KKK costume? And, and so this just- one got a lot of headlines. <laughs> and even just hearing, I mean, I read the story, your story, Jimmy, and I read other yeah. stories about this. Just hearing that hypo is what we're talking about, about how strange this argument got. So so the, the attorney, Colorado's solicitor general, basically answers, I mean, he would not be forced to do that because a KKK costume, unlike LGBTQ status, is not a protected characteristic. No way. So it, is that... <laughs> do we, do, do we have case law on this? Uh, so, yeah, you're not a protected so, class. And yeah. then Justice Kagan um, chimes in and says, like, and presumably, you know, uh, you know, kids of any ethnicity could could wear a KKK costume. At which point, Alito, he's like chuckling now, and he's like, "Well, how many black kids do you know of that are wearing KKK costumes?" And the whole thing just became really bizarre and kind of awkward in the courtroom. There were some muted laughs, and you know. It, 
I think it met a little bit of backlash uh, from from some users to think that he was basically you know treating the subject a little bit frivolously. Yeah. Um, but it was just one of these bizarre arguments where a number of these hypotheticals are being drawn up. And we're kind of like slowly sliding farther and farther away from the actual facts of the case. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And that's, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you, I mean, you watch and, and listen to lots of arguments at the Supreme Court. That's why we have you on the show all the time. And I would welcome even a little bit of speculation here. Can you understand or, or even guess as to like what the justices are trying to ascertain? Obviously, they use hypotheticals all the time, but they got into like, hypotheticals within hype like hypothetical right. inception and hypothetical theater here what like what do we think that they're after here in this inquiry yeah because i kept wondering like who are these for yeah like, who are these even for yeah i mean that's a good question so like if you just think about it like this is one of those cases where assuming that they don't punt and assuming that they confront these uh constitutional questions head on they will be the guidepost for this ongoing battle around the country uh, between religious business owners, um, who many states treat as public accommodations, and LGBTQ customers and clients. And it could be in the context of a wedding or it could be in another context. So I think what you're seeing is they are looking at these very weighty and novel constitutional questions that have not been answered and were left unanswered by you know, the 2015 Obergefell decision recognizing same-sex marriage and thinking like there will be a huge fight over whatever it is that we say. So we have to envision every scenario possible um, that could possibly come out of this. So, I mean, that's kind of how I read the questions. Obviously, they're using them strategically to try and undermine uh, the argument that they disagree with and show the slippery right. slope effects of it. But in all fairness, I mean, this is a huge question. And it's you know we've seen it in the case of the 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 baker we'll see it in the case of the the uh, we saw it in the case of the florist out in Washington who turned down a longtime customer who was seeking flowers for his uh, wedding and uh, I mean I just think it underscores the significance of the case the potential ramifications and yeah I mean I, I think no matter what the court says there's going to continue to be sprawling litigation because it just seems like this is a court right now that is very amenable to claims of religious discrimination. So Jimmy led right into kind of our final question for you, which is, is this going to be decided just based on the current makeup of the court? Or did you see any cracks in the expected 6-3 lineup that we might see in this case? I really didn't. I mean, I we, we have the data from obviously the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which was kind of a split compromise ruling. But I think Justice Anthony Kennedy's departure from the court, his retirement, is going to be the ball game here. I mean, the, the, the conservatives have the numbers now to effectuate their view of the First Amendment and provide these broad carve-outs for these religious business owners. And I saw nothing to suggest at oral arguments that it's going to come out any other way. Jimmy, it's always a treat to have you. You cover this better than absolutely anybody on the beat, uh, and, uh, and uh, especially in a case like this, which got very colorful analysis on a crucially important issue. So thanks for breaking it down for us, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, 
I love that we're going to talk about a pop legend today. We are. Alex, not yeah. too long ago, you asked me point blank if I was a Swifty. Uh-huh. I, I seem I to recall that. telling you that I am a fan, but I'm not sure that I'd identify with the Swifty label. You know, it carries a lot with it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, turns out this answer was also great for my, or, or the best answer, I should say, for being a journalist, because uh, <laughs> as everyone on the internet has pointed out a thousand times, the Swifties are really angry right now, and they're the ones who are out here spurring congressional hearings, Justice Department investigations, and state attorney general probes. You know, look, you used to think that what fandom is the most um, impactful? Is it the the K-pop people? Is it like BTS fans out there? Is it the Beehive? No, it's it's the Swifties right now. They're the ones holding the power. They really are. And obviously, I'm sure everyone knows why we're talking about this. This is the the Ticketmaster ordeal for the Eras tour. But the most recent news here is a bunch of fans have sued Ticketmaster over the whole tour debacle. All those Swifties are lawyering up. And, you know, just to to remind everyone, this is the disaster where Ticketmaster's uh, ticket sales for the tour just were an absolute mess. And a bunch of people spent like all day in queues online and couldn't get tickets. And then they had to cancel the the actual like main sale of the tickets. It was really funny when this happened on one level because there were lots of headlines about how given the demand, Taylor Swift would have had to have played concerts every single day for eight years to meet demand for this uh, tour. So that's pretty staggering. I liked that little tidbit. It's quite a number. It's quite a number. So I have a question for you both. Amber, you kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the segment. Does it surprise you that Taylor Swift is the artist that has spurred this antitrust reckoning in the ticket sales industry? Or is there a different artist that you would have expected (laughs) to do this first? I have a lot of thoughts on this, actually. Ticketmaster is no... No stranger to litigation about their practices and their business model and all sorts of problems over the years. In fact, I remember one very disappointing giant Ticketmaster settlement about some of their additional fees and stuff where everybody who'd bought tickets within a period just got vouchers for like $2.50 off a ticket. Here's a free ticket to a show you don't ever want to go to. Like a bunch (laughs) of stuff like that. And I remember like logging in and looking at it because I'm a pretty at least uh, maybe not as much post-pandemic, but pre-pandemic, I went to concerts a lot. No, you were a, you're a big live music fan. I love live music. And yeah. so I, when that settlement happened, I had like 50 different vouchers of different kinds and could use almost oh, wow. all of them. It was wild. So I'm not surprised they're in trouble again. Now, whether or not I thought this would be a Taylor Swift issue, debatable, because I think they had not entirely dissimilar problems when Adele did her last giant tour. Mm-hmm. Lots of people getting locked mm-hmm. out, pre-sales not working properly, all sorts of things like that, skyrocketing ticket prices. So this does happen for any big powerhouse act. I'm not surprised, mostly because she's been like, what are we on? We're on like her third album post-pandemic, right? Where she like basically, she's put out at least like four albums or maybe three albums without touring, right? Right. So yeah. that always is just that she's, you know. Pent up seat- demand seeding the ground. So like those factors coalesce that way. Um, as you say, Amber, I mean, Ticketmaster has like, is, is in such an entrenched position that they're all like, 
they basically exist as a middleman that <laughs> yeah. has been normalized just by by the way that the that the live music uh, ticket model has evolved over the last 30 years. But yeah. Also, just as a sign of how entrenched they are, I don't know if you guys remember this, but I do because they're my favorite band. Pearl Jam tried to go no Ticketmaster for a while. They had yeah, a big dispute over uh-huh. it and about mm-hmm. all the upcharges and the um, stranglehold on the market and all of that. And they had a big fight over it with them. They did some touring, not selling tickets through Ticketmaster, and it all eventually fell apart. And now they are back to selling their tickets through Ticketmaster too. You really can't get away from it. Even if an artist wants to pull out, it's almost impossible to do so. Yeah. And that that kind of brings us back to this current suit or this most recent suit from the Swifties. So they're saying there were about, I want to say there were 26 on the initial complaint and the lawyer representing them told me that they're going to, that there were a bunch of other plaintiffs adding on. So who knows how big it is at this point. That was like maybe five days ago that I talked to her. Could have could have really ballooned by then. But they're yeah. saying that Ticketmaster should face civil penalties and should have to pay them damages because it's out here violating California antitrust laws. It's trying to take essentially every dollar it can from the captive public. That's a quote from, from the complaint. Um, and according to the fans... It's exactly what you what we were just saying here. Ticketmaster employs this, they called it an anti-competitive scheme in which it forces fans to exclusively use its services to purchase tickets to any big events like this. They, you know, they've partnered up with pretty much every venue that's big enough to host shows yeah. like this. Like that's the one of the main problems here, according to the suit. And then, you know, they can set prices. However, they want to set prices. So obviously, you know, this is all according to Swifties, but we've probably encountered this in our own uh, ticket purchasing endeavors. I didn't even try for the Eras tour. I was like, <laughs> it's going to be out of my price range. It's going to be, I'm going to have to take the day off work. <laughs> Let's just to buy cut tickets, our losses. Not even to go. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Just to buy tickets. Just to buy This is a very yeah. much a, hi, it's them. It's Ticketmaster. They're the problem. It's them. Something like that. I don't know. Didn't get that lyric quite right. But we're somewhere in that ballpark that like... I don't know what you guys are talking about right now. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, listen to Midnight's. What are you doing? Uh, I listened to Midnight's. I, you know, it was... um, I found it a little uh, juvenile. I'll just... uh, I'll just say that. You know what, Alex? (laughs) I normally love talking to you so much, but up at the top of the show, you're not watching White Lotus. We're here at the bottom of the show. (sighs) You didn't get into Midnight's. What are we doing with our time? We have some homework for you. Okay. Well, I mean, no, I, mean I, I at least listen to Midnight. I listen sure. to the whole okay. thing anyway. That's fair. Uh, That's but, fair. you know, it's, it's just it's not my bag. Um, I will only say, I hope we get to the point, if this litigation really gains traction, um, I hope we get to cite somewhere in re-Swifties. That's, oh, that's what, that's what I want to see. I want to see that great. in court decisions, in law school uh, articles, etc. I'm going to guess that Ticketmaster is just going to Shake it off. Shake it off. All right. Well, we'll I, see. I could do these all day. <laughs> the Swifties have their wildest dreams. I don't know. You got to stop me now before I keep going. What's going on? All right. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. I'll end the yeah. show now, guys. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Haley. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader. 
Our guests this week, Jimmy Hoover, and our contributing reporters, Lauren Berg and Jasmine Jackson. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a written review explaining why you like the show, because it really helps other people find us. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.